In just a moment, we'll begin episode three of the Ryder Cup run, looking at the 1985 event at the Belfry. Each episode of this podcast goes in depth on one specific Ryder Cup. By the end, I'm hoping to do all 18 of them that fit my particular definition of the modern era, which begins, according to me, in 1983. And actually, I should say there'll be 19 episodes because, of course, we're about to have another Ryder Cup in less than a week at Whistling Straits. Anyway, each episode is typically meant to stand alone. However, in the case of 1983, 85, and 87, they're best understood, or at least they're being presented here, as a kind of foundational trilogy. And the reason I bring that up is that 83 was the focus of the last episode, and for context about the rise of Team Europe and Tony Jacklin and Seve Ballesteros, and everything that leads to the Belfry, I highly recommend that you check that one out first. And the last thing before we begin is that this podcast is free, it will always be free, and it will always be ad-free except for this ad, my book about the 2021 Ryder Cup, which will come out next spring through the good folks at Hachette, is now available for pre-order. The people who know things tell me that pre-orders are very valuable. I don't know why, but that's what they say. And anyone who wants to express their appreciation for this show by ordering the book, I appreciate it. And if you like the show, well, nothing is certain in life, but I can almost guarantee you're going to like the book. I, for one, happen to think it's going to be pretty good. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, whatever your particular preference is, and search for The Cup They Couldn't Lose. I'll also put a link in the show description. That might be easier. And now you've heard my spiel. We're done here. Enjoy the show. I'm going to leave you all in one thought, and I'm going to leave. I'm a big believer in fate. I have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm going to tell you. We all swore that Sunday night, we will be coming back, we will come back, we will beat them in 85, we will beat them in 85. And you wouldn't bet against Patrick Reed following him in. I was very emotional, I started to think about uh, maybe the possibility of winning here uh, today. Uh, a few thoughts uh, for my friend Sevi. This one is for, for him. <laughs> Five of you have already asked me tonight, you know, what's the winning formula and what's the difference year in and year out? And, you know, if I could put my finger on it, would have changed this shit a long time ago. This for the Ryder Cup. Oh, and it slipped by the edge. It slipped by the edge and now things change. Now things change. I live for the Ryder Cup, that's why I'm here. I will deliver a point. Let's start with a question that if I asked you face-to-face, -face, might feel personal, might feel too personal. Who in this life do you feel you have to prove yourself to? I choose those words on purpose, and when I say them, I don't mean... Who do you want to impress? Because we want to impress everyone, don't we? Strangers, people we barely know, people whose opinions don't really matter that much to us. Human nature is that we want to impress them all. But to have to prove yourself to someone goes a little bit deeper. It implies a few extra things, and they're big things. If you have to prove yourself to someone, it probably means, for one, that they might not believe in you yet. It probably means your lower status in some way have been for a while means that your success or failure in proving yourself could have a major psychological or material impact on your life. So, who do you feel you have to prove yourself to? 
could be a boss, a coworker, a friend, a spouse, a sibling. I think a lot of people would say a parent, a mother, or a father. That's a pretty common dynamic, isn't it? Could be a rival. Could be yourself. When we look at the history of the Ryder Cup and we pinpoint those unique years where we look back and say that was a must win, what we're really saying is that one team had to prove themselves. To who? Well, there are a lot of answers there, too, to their opponents, to the golf world, the sports world. And arguably, most important of all, they had to win for self-belief. They had to win for themselves. Have the Americans ever had to prove themselves in the Ryder Cup? From our perspective on this side of the Atlantic, has there ever been a must-win? Everybody's criteria for this is going to be different. It's more art than science, and you might not agree with my view, but I think that maybe there's an argument that Hazeltine in 2016 was the first time that happened. And maybe Whistling Straits, which starts very soon, is the second time. There was never a must-win in the pre-European years. They won constantly, and when they didn't, it was a one-off fluke. Once Europe joined and things became more competitive, I think it'd still be hard-pressed to find any single cup, even when they were getting their butts kicked, where you'd say they had to win that one. There's enough historical weight to carry you a few decades, and anyway, you can't really prove yourself when you don't have a battle plan, which they didn't for years. But then there was the disaster in 2014 in Glen Eagles. The Ryder Cup Task Force was formed in response. They committed to change. They had a broader plan for once. And there was no excuse for losing at home at Hazeltine against a European team full of rookies. Imagine what that would have meant to lose there. Similar situation this year. Not exactly the same. The Europeans aren't as bad as 2016, but similar. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think if the Americans lose this one at home after the Paris debacle, they don't really have an argument that they're a competitive team anymore. What about the other side? The British, the Europeans, have they had a must-win? I would say never in the British-Irish years. There was barely ever a could-win in those days, much less a must-win, which is why Europe was brought into the mix at Jack Nicklaus's behest for 1979. You remember the story. Nicholas told Lord Darby, head of the British PGA, cousin to Queen Elizabeth, hey, this event is losing its allure, and it's in danger. 79-81, the Europeans join, more blowouts for the Americans. The very few players from continental Europe don't make much difference. Then Tony Jacklin the man who's going to be the George Washington of Team Europe, takes over in 1983. And that year, you're getting to the point where pretty soon, Europe is going to need to win. There's going to be a must-win. To prove that this thing is competitive, to give it a prayer of achieving a higher profile, the profile it has today, they don't need to win in 83. Not quite yet, but it's coming. You can't keep getting blown out and expect this thing to have any status. And if it doesn't have status... In the modern world of professional golf, it's not going to survive. You ever heard of the duel in the pool? Not exactly the stuff of sports legend. I hadn't heard of it until recently. It was a swimming team event held every two years between 2003 and 2015. Basically, the idea there was that it's the Ryder Cup for swimming, playing off the rivalries that were so entertaining at the Olympics. At first, it pitted U.S. swimmers against Australian swimmers. Then when that didn't work, U.S. versus Europe... What happened to the duel in the pool? Well, America won seven straight times. It was never really close. And the TV sponsors and the networks eventually said, no thanks. No more duel in the pool. Dead in the water. No pun intended. It sounds crazy to compare the two, the duel in the pool and the Ryder Cup, but we probably don't appreciate how close the Ryder Cup came to a similar fate. Yeah, it had a longer leash. 
mostly because the period of boring American dominance happened in a different historical time when you could afford decades of this stuff because it was really the only game in town. TV revenue was no concern because it wasn't on TV. The players themselves were not pulled in so many directions, but by 1977, you have guys like Tom Weisskopf skipping the Ryder Cup to go hunting. That's not a joke. Along with that, attendance in America is abysmal. At 83, you have 1,000 fans there on Sunday, 1,000 fans on the entire course. Why would anyone want to put that on TV? If not for the intervention of people like Jack Nicklaus, Tony Jacklin, Sevi Ballesteros, one way or another, eventually this thing is dead. But as far as Europe goes, Jacklin changes everything. He treats his team members like the world-class golfers they're starting to become, introduces actual team strategy. He's got everyone believing, everyone happy, they go to America to PGA National and come within a whisper of winning on U.S. soil. Never been done before. And Nicholas, the American captain, is so relieved that he's not the first one to blow it at home that he kisses the divot where Lanny Watkins hit what was more or less the winning shot. Europeans are heartbroken in the aftermath, but Seve Ballesteros in the locker room pumps everyone up, says this isn't a loss, this is a win. Everybody's emotional, they're crying, they believe it, they're fired up, they know in their hearts he's right, and they cannot wait for 1985. At the start of this podcast, in our introduction, you hear the quote from Sam Torrance. We will beat them in 85. We will beat them in 85. They all felt that way. But let's engage in a historical counterfactual just for a moment and ask ourselves, what if they didn't win? Because here in 1985 at the Belfry in the West Midlands of England, you've got a situation where the Ryder Cup is at a major fork in the road. The Europeans are energized beyond belief. We said that. They've got a great leader, a great team shaping up. But the facts in the ground are still the facts in the ground. And the facts in the ground are that the Americans have crushed them for decades. And if the Americans win again at the Belfry, then where the hell are we? What does the moral victory of 1983 amount to? What happens to the European momentum? What happens to a wave that seems to be on the verge of cresting if it doesn't actually crest? Does Jacqueline come back for 87? If he doesn't, does Seve bother playing? What if their next captain is a dud right at the moment when they're reeling? Does the Ryder Cup come back? And if it does, is it just to fizzle out and die a few years later? The answer is we don't know. It didn't happen. But those are the questions. Those are the stakes facing this European team at the Belfry. And in this trilogy of Ryder Cups, like in a lot of trilogies, sometimes the second episode gets overlooked. Because the first is the thrilling introduction, the third is the dramatic conclusion, this is no different. You have the shot across the bow in 83 that falls just short, perfectly scripted in terms of a dramatic arc. And then in 87, you have the Europeans finally winning on American soil, essentially destroying the Death Star and changing the Ryder Cup landscape forever. But it would be a big mistake to look past 1985. This is the one that makes the rest of it possible. This is the fulcrum on which the whole lever turns. This is the one where Europe has to show that 83 was no fluke. They need to show their rivals, their fans, and themselves that they're good for more than moral victories. And at stake, potentially, is the whole future of the Ryder Cup. How's that for pressure? Here's what one British writer named Ron Wills, who worked for the Mirror, wrote on the eve of that 85 Cup, and it's what everybody believes. Quote, If Europe's golfers don't beat the Yanks at the Belfry this weekend, they may never beat them. End quote. I'll ask it again. Who in this world... Do you have to prove yourself to? It's a heavy question, and for Tony Jacklin and his team in 1985, they know damn well it's a heavy answer. 
At the Belfry, the Europeans have to prove themselves to everyone. The Germans have a great word, one of those long, classic compound words that I'm almost definitely going to mispronounce, and the word is Gotterdammerung. It's part of an opera cycle written by Richard Wagner in the late 1800s, and there were a few translations, but my favorite is The Twilight of the Gods. Viewed historically, 1983 is the American Gotterdammerung, The Twilight of the Gods, the moment when they scored their last major victory before they, as the premier golf deities, ceased to be the divine Ryder Cup force they had been for 60 years. But as with all things, we should take pains to understand the situation, not just with historical hindsight here in 2021, that's easy, but to take the contemporary view to understand how things were at the time. And if you were around in, let's say, 1985, before the Belfry, and you told some golf fan that America had just had its twilight of the gods, that things would never be the same, you'd probably be laughed out of the room. At that point, America had won 13 straight Ryder Cups of the preceding 28 years with the retained cup in 1969 thrown in the mix. 13 straight. Imagine that now. Or, put a different way, the Americans had lost once in 50 years. 20-1 and one was their record over that time. If you were paying close attention, Europe's effort in 83 would have maybe made you raise an eyebrow, and it did for the Americans, to be fair, but you would have had no clue what was actually coming. And no matter how good a team might look, if they haven't won in that long, if the results have been that consistently dismal, you never really believe they're going to win until it happens. You've been burned too many times. You can find parallels elsewhere in sports. Maybe you think of a team like the Chicago Cubs around 2012 or so. They had Theo Epstein as their general manager. Epstein had broken one of the great long-standing curses in baseball with a World Series win in Boston. And as his years in Chicago went by, the team got better and better. You could sense they were on the verge of something. But... They hadn't won a World Series in more than 100 years. And no matter how good the signs were, not many people, including their own fans, maybe especially their own fans, believe they would actually do it. Until 2016 comes and they do. That's what it takes. It takes the victory itself. Because when you've been that bad for that long, nothing but absolute victory can change the perception that you're always going to fail. Tony Jacklin is back as captain of the European team. If you listen to the 83 episode, you understand that's one of the all-time no-brainers. There wasn't even any consideration that I can find of bringing on anyone new. Today, it would be very unusual for a captain to be chosen twice. We saw it with Davis Love because of the oddity surrounding the task force and the upheaval after Glen Eagles. We saw Colin Montgomery try it in 2014 and get shot down in favor of Paul McGinley. And as these clean lines of succession develop on both sides today, I think it'll be a very long time before we see another repeat captain, if ever. But back then, the governing bodies in Europe, the British PGA, the new European tour, they knew how important it was financially to make the Ryder Cup a marquee event. They were clueless as to how to do it, so when someone came along like Jacqueline, who seemed to know what he was doing, seemed to be steering the ship in a competitive, profitable direction, a guy who literally says, winning the Ryder Cup is what I wanted more than anything else in the world, they said, please keep going. And in fact, even after 87, his third captaincy, Jacqueline was mostly sick of it. 
He knew he turned the ship around, accomplished everything he wanted. Certain things were starting to irritate him about the job. He wanted out. But even then, Sam Torrance, Seve Ballesteros, many others said, no, you can't do it. You've got to stay. And this is oversimplifying a little, but basically they forced him to come back for a fourth cup in 89. So rewind to 85. There's zero thought, at least that I can find, that anybody else is going to take the reins. It has to be Jacqueline. And he's got a trick up his sleeve for this Ryder Cup. Something he negotiated in 1983 with the British PGA. But they gave him the job too late to implement it that year. But now it's happening. Captain's picks. Three of them. This is a recent innovation. It was implemented for the first time in 1979 at the start of the European era. Before that, it was all points-based. In the very early days, it operated by selection committee. But in 79, John Jacobs, the European captain, had two picks that year. 81, he had two more. But everything was so disorganized in the late in 83 that they go by the wayside for that one. Now they're back. And Jacqueline tells a funny story about the negotiating process. When he was approached about the captaincy, we know he was shocked to get that offer. But his tactic when he gave his answer was to ask for the moon, and if the powers that be said no, great, he's out, no problem. One of the things he was going to ask for was three captain's picks, which sounded ambitious even to him. But they said yes to everything. And he left that meeting thinking, crap, I should have asked for four. But he gets three, and it's another indication that Jacqueline is a big-time forward thinker. He understands that the best players for a Ryder Cup team are not always going to be the top 12 on whatever rankings list they come up with. And in fact, those ranking lists are always a little strange. And if you think they're bad now, you should have seen them then, especially on the American side. Examples, in 1981, Lanny Watkins wins the Open Championship. He'll end up being the greatest American Ryder Cupper ever, went 4-1 and one just two years earlier, doesn't make the team. In 1983, Larry Nelson, 36 years old, a guy who was an absolute killer for the Americans in the Ryder Cup, wins the U.S. Open, doesn't make the team. Tom Watson almost doesn't make the team in 83, despite winning the Masters that year. And we're not talking about winning the Masters the previous year. He won that year. And the only reason he does make the team is because Hal Sutton, who wins the Open Championship, isn't eligible because he's only in his third year on tour. And by the rules of the time, he can't play. He's not even a rookie, mind you. He's in year three, but no, he's ineligible. You think Jack Nicholas would have liked a captain's pick to use on Nelson or Sutton in 83? Or what about the year we're talking about, 85, when Tom Watson has a slight down year, missed the team by literally one stroke in the PGA Championship, only because he bogeyed 18 on Sunday? You think maybe they would have liked to pick him, a five-time major winner with an incredible Ryder Cup record? And look, these are just the early 80s. That's just the tip of the iceberg. This stuff makes less sense the more you look at it. The European rankings were probably a little more sensible. But Jacqueline knew how important captain's picks were. We have statistics today that show that captain's picks play better, pretty reliably, compared to bottom-of-the-table automatic picks. The guys in 6th, 7th, 8th place which is why statistical analysts like the 15th Club, who have helped out European Ryder Cup teams, they encouraged Thomas Bjorn to go with four picks in 2018 instead of three. It's why Steve Stricker was encouraged by Scouts Consulting, the American equivalent, to stick with six picks after the pandemic. It's also why it's a little mystifying that Padraig Harrington chose to go with three instead of four and never budged even after COVID when he could have had many more than four. Something to think about as we head into Whistling Straits. Anyway, Jacqueline doesn't have that data in 1985, but for him, this kind of stuff is intuitive. So he's got three picks to use. It's a nice little advantage because the Americans, it won't shock you to know, as with many things, 
they are late to the game on this one. And they're not going to implement captain's picks until 1989, and they're not going to give themselves more than two picks until 2008, when Paul Azinger shakes off the cobwebs a little and finally gives America a forward-thinking captain. Europe has another obvious advantage as they try to break this unbelievable losing streak, and that's playing at home at the Belfry in England. And I should say here that some people don't love the Belfry, especially architecture people. They consider it a little plain, a little bit like some Parkland course you could find anywhere in Florida. And why are you playing the Ryder Cup there when you have so many incredible links courses to choose from? The answer is always financial, by the way. The Brabazon course at the Belfry was built in 1977 by the British PGA. They moved their headquarters there. And there were all kinds of obvious economic incentives to hosting the Ryder Cup there, which is why they did it again in 89, again in 93, again in 2002. Some people don't like the inland style of it, though. They said the same thing about Glen Eagles in 2014 when I went there. They said similar things about Le Golf National in Paris. And maybe there's a little bit of irony in the fact that Whistling Straits in Wisconsin, of all places, looks the most like a Lynx course of anywhere the Ryder Cup has been in a long time, even if it doesn't really play like one. And while I'm sympathetic to complaints about the Belfry, and I admire the smart people who get really into architecture, I'm going to level with you and tell you I'm not a big architecture guy myself. Not quite how my brain works. If I'm at a golf tournament, I'm looking up the names of trees and plants, and if there's natural beauty of any kind, I'm usually a sucker for it, an easy mark. And beyond that, I care about the people and the story. So I'm personally not one of these people you'll see complaining about a course from that standpoint. I'm not smart enough to know any better. I think it was Lincoln who said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove any doubt. So I'll mostly take that advice. But particularly in match play, I do think the head-to-head nature of things makes the matter a little less important. If you have some risky holes, which the Brabazon course does, like their 10th hole, a drivable par 4 over water, and a good finishing hole like the 18th, where water is in play everywhere all the way to the green, and as long as it's not too easy, generally that's going to be a fine theater for a Ryder Cup. Again, my opinion, my bias, but I won't be talking a ton about that element. But it is worth saying and knowing that there's this anti-Belfry sentiment in some corners. And even competitively, some people think maybe it gives the U.S. an advantage not to be on a Lynx course. Here's something kind of interesting, though. Jacqueline made the choice at the Belfry to take the rough down, especially around the greens. So his idea was that it makes it possible to chip in that case, which wasn't the bread and butter of American golfers. And he also slowed up the greens because at that time, the Americans were constantly playing on fast greens on the PGA Tour. The Europeans were not. And the Americans were much better when the speeds were fast. So Jacqueline wanted to get these greens to European speed. And that kind of tweaking, the details change. Now we consider it very, very normal. Home captains have the prerogative to do that kind of thing to gain whatever little advantage they can. But what's interesting about it to me is that just last week, NBC did a little press conference with some of their talent who were going to cover the Ryder Cup. Paul Azinger was among that group. And he said that in 2008, when he made some tweaks to Valhalla to give the Americans an advantage, Kerry Haig at the PGA of America told him he was the first American captain to ever do that. To some extent, that's more evidence of how slowly America has moved on these things. But in another sense, it's more evidence that Jacqueline is very far ahead of his time. All that said, it's still a very American course. You can't turn a place like the Belfry into a Lynx course overnight. And Lee Trevino, the American captain, is ecstatic beforehand saying, my guys love this course. 
If you're Jacqueline, you are not going to win the Ryder Cup by mowing grass. How he thinks he might win it is by continuing to foster an excellent team environment. He works with an executive named Brian Cash at the Belfry to make sure his team has great rooms, great food, great drink. He made sure the wives were part of the environment, that there were centralized team rooms where it would be natural for everyone to congregate and socialize. And meanwhile, his wife Vivian is helping him with all this, especially on the family side of things. And by all accounts, he's creating a situation where everybody's having a great time. And now it's just kind of an intellectual exercise. Let's contrast that with the interview a lot of you may have read recently with Brooks Kepka in Golf Digest, a great interview where whether you like what he said or not, he was honest and he was essentially saying the Ryder Cup is busy and stressful and he doesn't like it. Now, Kepka may not represent your average American player necessarily, but if he's saying it, other people are probably thinking it. And it does make you wonder if the American players are sort of centered by the people organizing things, if there's anybody going, we want to make sure they have a good, relaxed time. That was Jacqueline's top priority. And according to every account of how that team bonded year after year, it was a huge success. The big advantage of being at home for the Europeans, though, are the crowds. At this point in history, in the Ryder Cup, there haven't really been many raucous crowds. One of the few you hear reference to is actually 1957, the last time the British team won at Lindrick Golf Club. We know in 83 in Florida, two years before, you had almost nobody there on Sunday, which is kind of amazing to think about now. And in Europe, remember, this was not a competitive event. Their fan culture is very different from ours. They like to sing. They like to chant. They're sort of better at forming this mass collective that can be very intimidating can even in the right circumstances feel a little dangerous. And especially at that point in time, in the mid-80s, was dangerous at soccer matches. By the way, if you want to read a great book about soccer hooligan culture in a place like Manchester, read Among the Thugs by Bill Buford, an amazing story, a very disturbing one, the kind of book you'll read in about a day. But even today, in the era of huge, boisterous galleries at Ryder Cups, you can sometimes see, even in American Ryder Cups, how a small smattering of European fans can really make themselves heard as a sort of cohesive unit, almost like a small military corps and how committed they are to the mission of cheering compared to the less organized cheering style of Americans. For whatever reason, it's not in our DNA the same way. But before 85, that European style hadn't really registered in the Ryder Cup because the Ryder Cup wasn't competitive. In 81, in Walton Heath, you have a guy like Bruce Litsky, an American player, saying something like this. And this comes from the great oral history, Us Against Them, by Robin McMillan. I've mentioned it before. It has been such an incredible resource for me, and I thoroughly recommend that you buy and read it. Here's what Litsky had to say. Quote, And we were still in the days when this was going to be an American victory, and the Ryder Cup was truly just a quaint little social gathering of Americans and Europeans. It was just a very quiet event. End quote. Tony Jacklin told me that for the fans in that era in the UK, it was a rare opportunity to come out and see the American stars, these legends who rarely came abroad, who you couldn't watch on TV very much, if at all, back then. So it's almost a situation like, imagine the dream team going to Barcelona for the 92 Olympics. Sure, they're a visiting team, but it's Michael Jordan, it's Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. They're conquering heroes, and they're crowd favorites even away from home. And again, that Litsky quote about a quiet event, that's 81, just one European Ryder Cup earlier, four years before. By 85, those days are gone, at least in Europe. And at least now that they know things are competitive and their boys have a chance to win. 
The word is out, and the days of politesse are over. Again, this is just in Europe. Interestingly, in 87, when it's back in America, in Muirfield Village, the fans are still quiet, still subdued, to the point that Jack Nicholas is frustrated and is personally handing out little American flags to them and almost begging them to be more partisan, more patriotic, louder. They don't respond. And since then, he's always says he always feels they may have cost him the victory, the fact that that atmosphere just didn't exist. But the next American Ryder Cup after that one is 1991, the War by the Shore, and it's a total wild transformation for the American crowds, and that's the end of either set of fans being tame forever. But in 85, the English fans of the Belfry are raring to go. The Americans have not seen this before, and to some of them, it's shocking. Here's what Curtis Strange said. Quote, They were rooting like hell for their own team and didn't give a rat's ass about you. So that was an eye-opener, too. I was fine with it, but it was troubling to some of the players on the team. End quote. Peter Jacobson was shocked by the us-against-them flavor. He said, quote, When I would miss a putt, people would cheer. And I thought, you know, you're not supposed to do that. But Lanny Watkins said to me, get used to it. These people want us to lose. End quote. Lee Trevino, the U.S. captain, more on him soon, but he said that on Saturday, his players' wives were getting hissed at. And the angriest player of all had to be Hal Sutton. Sutton was irate, and here's what he had to say when it was all over. Quote, I don't need the money. I play golf because I enjoy it. If the crowds ever get like this in America, I wouldn't hit another golf ball. British golf fans have always had a reputation for fairness and appreciation of the game, but none of our guys saw any of that this week. Their behavior was disgraceful. And there's even more in a UPI story. Sutton goes on. Hell, I was even ordered to sit down on the fairway by one guy, and I was playing in the match. This week has been more like a football game than a golf match. We have endured contact sport. I didn't play well today, but I could have played a hell of a lot better if I had been given the chance. I was verbally abused, and if this is British sportsmanship, then it is a sad day for golf. End quote. As a side note, you might be interested in Jacqueline's response to all that. He said, quote, I bet Hal Sutton can't wait to get back to America and head straight for McDonald's. End quote. Okay, now some of this stuff, like cheering when a putt misses, may seem pretty mild and quaint in 2021 after everything we've seen in the Ryder Cup since. And in fact, Jacqueline and Ballesteros, kind of a lot of other people on Team Europe said the Americans are exaggerating. It wasn't as bad as that. It was mostly positive. But again, let's take the contemporary view. You've got to remember this was all new. Nobody expected it, especially with the Americans. And a lot of these guys, maybe all of them, have never played golf under these conditions in their entire lives. To put it mildly, they are not used to this, and they're not ready for it. Nicholas wasn't there in 85, but he hears the stories, and you can see why in 87 he's so annoyed when the American fans have basically no sense of the moment. They treat the Ryder Cup like American fans have treated this fun little exhibition for decades. They're not going to be rude. They're not going to be loud. It's just a bit of fun. They can't rise to the occasion. In Europe, the fans are rising. The golfers are rising, too. You may remember from the 83 episode, you had a lot of future legends on that team, but at the time, there was only one major winner, and that was Seve Ballesteros. Well, two years have passed by the time we get to the Belfry, and things are changing a little. Seve wins another Open Championship in 84. Bernard Langer becomes the first ever German major champion when he wins the Masters in 85. Sandy Lyle wins the Open in 85. So now you got three major winners. Paul Way wins the British PGA. 
And on the European tour, guys like Ian Woosnam and Sam Torrance and Nick Faldo are winning like crazy. But let's not get it twisted. They still aren't on the level of the Americans. Years later, Tony Jacklin would say that Europe is always weaker than the Americans, mostly for lack of depth. And though that's not always true, it's mostly true. Look at Whistling Straits this year. We don't know what's going to happen, or maybe you do if you're listening to this later. I don't right now as I'm speaking. But we do know the American team is just better, and by a fairly significant amount. It's rare for that not to be the case. It's certainly the case in 85. If you're going to criticize the U.S. team, you'd say that maybe they weren't as strong as other American teams of that era. Some of the stalwarts like Larry Nelson aren't there. There's no Nicholas, of course. No Hale Irwin. The big one, as mentioned before, is that Tom Watson had a down year. But he was on the verge of making the 12th spot until he made bogey at the PGA Championship on the very last hole of the very last qualifying tournament that moved him from a tie for fifth, which he needed, into a tie for sixth. And there were no captain's picks to bring him along. As a side note, I got this from the AP. Lee Trevino was actually being interviewed on air at Cherry Hills that Sunday by Jack Whitaker of ABC. And he's listing off his team members, saying how strong the U.S. team is going to be. And he says, we've got Green and Stadler and Watson and right on down the line. And Whitaker says, Watson didn't make it. And all Trevino can say is, oh, uh, probably one of the most meaningful two-letter answers in golf history right there. But you've still got Tom Kite and Curtis Strange and Lanny Watkins, the man Jacqueline called the cockiest son of a bitch you ever met in 10 lifetimes, all of them in the midst of very good Ryder Cup careers. Another quick aside, I saw Watkins very recently on Golf Today on the Golf Channel with Shane Bacon and Damon Hack. And it was wonderful to see him just be himself on TV. Basically, he called modern players weaklings, and even at age 71, you can just tell what the guy was like, what a tough opponent he must have been. And the U.S. has four rookies to go along with these guys, but one of them, Andy North, just won the U.S. Open, and another, Hal Sutton, is already a major winner, too. There are other major winners on that team. Craig Stadler, Hubert Green, who won that year's PGA Championship we were just talking about. Raymond Floyd, Fuzzy Zeller, who won the U.S. Open in 84. And other than Watkins, you can't really pinpoint a juggernaut, but there's depth top to bottom. And then it's filled out by guys like Marco Mira, Calvin Pete, who's the first African-American to ever play in the Ryder Cup two years earlier, and Peter Jacobson, all of them quality players. It's a very, very good team. And it's captained by someone who I think is one of the most interesting figures ever in American golf, Lee Trevino. We're going to go into a little bit of depth on Trevino, but the thing I want to mention up top, and I think it's important, is that the qualities that make Lee Trevino such a fascinating, cool compelling golfer don't necessarily make him a great captain but I want to go further than that and say that I don't really think that almost anyone from America would have been a great captain that year so if I say that Trevino is almost a non-entity a captain it's not really a knock on him it's more just the state of American Ryder Cup golf which is that while they respect the Europeans they know they're in for a fight they even know they could lose they don't have any concept what Tony Jacklin is doing or what they should be doing in response, how they might have to start building up the institution to compete with a team that's suddenly taking this thing very seriously and that's starting to build a template that's going to serve as a sort of guiding light for decades. The Europeans can do this. They are doing it. And you could say, oh, sure, they can do it because they had Jacklin and the Americans don't have a Jacklin. But that's being a little reductive. The reason Europe can have a Jacklin is because they've lost for so long and have developed this inferiority complex in regard to American golf 
And maybe there's a parallel in terms of the cultures. America is kind of first in everything by this point. But they can operate with a constant chip on their shoulders, the Europeans, knowing they have to finagle for every possible advantage and with an underdog mentality that's going to unite them. So yes, Jacqueline is a genius, but he emerged from a specific set of circumstances that are conducive to a Jacqueline emerging. And by the way, this sense of camaraderie based on perceived inferiority and the need to constantly prove yourself, there's that theme again, persists to this day on Team Europe. And you might ask yourself, wait a second, how does a team like this, who is 9-3 in the last 12 Ryder Cups, still maintain this perpetual underdog status? And the answer is because they know it's persistently true, even if they keep winning. And on the other side of that, you have the Americans, who get the worst of both sides of this thing by occupying this favorite status, by constantly thinking that having the better players is enough, going into almost every Ryder Cup as the favorites, and maybe coming from a more individualistic society and within that society an incredibly individualistic sport it keeps them from having that point of solidarity of inferiority that the europeans seem to have in their quiver every single time and the point i'm making is that it's been historically extremely hard for the americans to understand how they're being beaten in this thing in my opinion aside from the brilliant captaincy of paul asinger they didn't even start to try to answer the question until the humiliation of glenn eagles in 2014 and in 1985, when they still haven't even lost in decades, there's absolutely no way for a Jacqueline-like captain to emerge. It's way, way too early. And American innovation in this particular event moves at a glacial pace in the first place. So when we say too early, I mean like 30 years too early. All you could ever get at that moment in time is a captain who basically does things the way they've always been done. And that's who Trevino is. It's who anybody would have been. Here was Curtis Strange again from Us Against Them. Quote, And you have to remember that captains back then didn't do as much as they do now. Dow Finsterwald told me after dinner in Dallas, the only thing I told my guys was to do what you normally do. If you're used to drinking a fifth of liquor, drink a fifth of liquor. Don't change because of the Ryder Cup. So captains didn't do as much. They dressed you up and said, go get them, boys. End quote. And here's Peter Jacobson. Quote, We didn't have an intense preparation. I think because in Lee Trevino's years of being on the Ryder Cup team, they were so dominant. Lee had just gotten married, and I think his mind was more in his marriage and having a good time. Lee said, you guys can play. You guys know how to handle this. Go get him. End quote. So, okay, by 2014, with Tom Watson bungling things beyond repair in Scotland, you're pulling your hair out and with good reason. But with Lee Trevino in 85, you know, what else are you going to get? I think to sit here and criticize Trevino is missing a much bigger point, which is that nobody in the U.S. is geared to respond to what's happening. Not yet. And it would be a little unfair to take umbrage with that in 85 because they're also products of their culture and history. And everything about that culture and history in golf is going to tell them there's no need to change or to do anything radical. Trevino is a guy who won six major championships. He's one of the greatest golfers in history, and funny enough, he won the PGA Championship in 1984, beating Lanny Watkins and Gary Player by four strokes. And that's about a year before this Ryder Cup. So there's a point, at least, in 1984, where you have to think, okay, maybe this guy might actually make the team. Then he won again at the Dunhill British Masters in June 85, then, you remember I said Hubert Green won the 85 PGA Championship. Well, the guy he beats in what basically came down to a match play duel is Lee Trevino. Trevino finishes in a tie for second. 
by the Ryder Cup in 85. He's 45 years old. And the funny thing is that if this had happened today, you'd be able to find a million articles saying, should Lee Trevino make his own team? My research, I won't pretend it's 100% comprehensive, but I don't find anything like that. Here's the lead paragraph by Gordon S. White Jr., New York Times, after Trevino won the 84 PGA Championship. Quote, Lee Trevino, the 44-year-old Texan with a nailing back, defied all the rules about age and the need for constant practice when he rallied on the back nine of Shoal Creek Golf Club today to win the 66th annual PGA Championship by four shots over Lanny Watkins and Gary Player. End quote. Doesn't mention the Ryder Cup once in the article. In fact, as an exercise, if you're into research and you think you're good, go back and try to find when Lee Trevino was named Ryder Cup captain. I found it eventually in a one-paragraph story in the Palm Beach Post. It was on or around October 20th, 1984, so after the PGA Championship, and that shows you how important the Ryder Cup was in America. Not very. And don't get me wrong, Trevino really wanted to be the captain. In 83, he said it would be one of the great honors of his life and added, quote, but Lord, I wouldn't want to be captain of the team that loses. But there's absolutely no talk, even idle talk in the media, even just saying, hey, isn't it funny how well this guy is playing and he's the captain? Nothing like that. But Lee Trevino was particularly good at taking things in stride. It probably didn't bother him one bit. This is one of the most unique figures in American professional golf, and what makes him so unique starts early in life in the cotton fields of Garland, Texas, where he's raised by his mother, Juanita, his grandfather, Joe Trevino, who was a gravedigger, and he never knew his father, who left when he was young. Born and raised in America, but he had Mexican ancestry, and in time, he'd become an icon to Mexican-Americans and even some Mexicans, and his nicknames always reflected his heritage. He was called the Merry Mex, or Super Mex. He had no money, his family had no money as a kid, but his uncle gave him balls and clubs when he was young, and he would sneak onto country club courses to practice. And at age eight, he got a job caddying at Dallas Athletic Club. Left school at 14, made $30 a week as a caddy and shoe shiner, and he was able to practice in his spare time. A lot of people think the hard Texas ground he hit off may have been responsible for his unique, compact swing. He joined the Marines in 1956, Served as a machine gunner for four years. He played golf in Asia during that stint, had some success. And when he was discharged in 1960, he became a club pro and he started hustling. A lot of players who hustle like that or who started their career that way, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. But the folks back then who did it, they learned a little bit about pressure before they even made it to the tour. And Trevino, he qualifies for the U.S. Open in 66. Did it again in 67, went and finished fifth. That earned him tour privileges quickly won Rookie of the Year, and then in 1968, he won the U.S. Open. Suddenly, this Mexican-American hustler is recognized as one of the best golfers on the planet. Eric Nussbaum and Adam Villison, I hope I'm saying that name right, have a great free newsletter called Sports Stories. It comes in your email, and I recommend signing up for it. They recently wrote about Trevino and dug up this paragraph from Dan Jenkins in the aftermath of that 68 U.S. Open win. Jenkins writes, Supermex is what he called himself, Super Mexican. And there he was, out there in the midst of all that U.S. Open dignity with his spread-out caddy hustler stance and his short, choppy public course swing, a stumpy little guy, tan as the inside of a tamale, pretty lippy for a nobody, and yeah, wearing those red socks. And here were all of these yells coming from the trees and the knolls of the Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester, coming from all of the other Lee Trevinos of the world. 
Whip the Gringo, hollered Lee's Fleas, a band of instant Mexican enthusiastic enough to rival anybody's army. Some of them $30 a week guys like Trevino himself was just a little more than a year ago. End quote. Now, okay, Dan Jenkins and Race are not always the best mix. This is actually nowhere near the worst example of that. And I say that with great admiration for Jenkins as a writer. But as Nussbaum and Villison point out, Jenkins really liked Trevino. Almost everyone did apart from maybe a few of his colleagues. You hear his other nickname, the Mary Mex, and you focus on the Mex part, but you can't ignore the Mary aspect of it. He had an incredibly cheerful disposition. He loved to talk on the golf course, to the point that it irritated some people. There's a fantastic story told by Chichi Rodriguez that's particularly relevant for us. Apparently there was a tournament where Tony, Jacqueline, and Trevino were paired up. And early on, trying to nip things in the bud, Jacqueline said, Lee, I don't want to talk today. And Trevino says, I don't want you to talk. I just want you to listen. Keep that one in mind. But essentially, as far as fans were concerned, Trevino is beloved. He ends up having a video game franchise in the 90s. Of course, he's in Happy Gilmore. He's an icon. And he wins six majors, the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, the Open Championship. But he never wins the Masters. And that's the other really interesting thing about Trevino's career because he actually boycotts Augusta National for three years in his prime, 71, 72. Then Nicholas talks him to coming back in 72 and 73, but he boycotts again in 74. And even when he shows up in 72, he wouldn't use the clubhouse. He made a point to change in his car. And there are a few interesting and conflicting reasons given for this by Trevino himself. For the longest time, his public stance was, it's about the course. He can't win there. It doesn't suit his fate, et cetera, et cetera which is strange because the first time he played there in 68, he was leading with nine holes to go. But by 69 at the end, he says, they can invite me all they want, but I'm not coming back. Nicholas tried to convince him he could win, but Trevino would say things like, if Jack had to play my itty-bitty tee shots, he'd have quit golf and opened a pharmacy in Ohio. But over time, it comes out that what he really doesn't like is the so-called stodgy atmosphere. And that makes a lot of sense. Consider the fact that just prior to playing Nicholas in the 71 U.S. Open 18-hole playoff, which Trevino won, he threw a rubber snake at Nicholas on the first tee. I mean, that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. The uptight propriety of Augusta is not going to be his thing. And he once remarked that if he hadn't qualified for Augusta, the only way they'd let him in is through the kitchen. And details on this are a little vague, but the story is he constantly butts heads with Cliff Roberts basically the Lord of Augusta, a guy who is and always has been a tremendous racist, famous for never allowing a black member at Augusta and basically having to be strong-armed into letting a black player even play there. And the stuff they fight over seems to be the course's million rules, not anything overtly racial, but that racial tension is definitely underlying all that stuff. Roberts actually invited him to have coffee in 72, maybe trying to make peace, sent him a note, but Trevino wrote back, I don't drink coffee. In other words, screw you. I'm not interested in your peace. Roberts committed suicide in 77. He shot himself on the banks of Lakes Pond. But Trevino has continued to criticize Augusta for years. He was in the news as recently as 2016, hammering their various rules, complaining about cell phones, things like that. That's the one case where Trevino seems to have this bitterness, where everywhere else in life he's almost happy-go-lucky, or at least he's got an incredible perspective, and you can understand why with Augusta. But let's go back to Tony Jacklin. I told this story in the last podcast. We'll do it quickly here. 
Jacqueline has an interesting way of meeting up with former rivals in the Ryder Cup. In 83, he goes against Nicholas. They shared the famous concession together. And now in 85, he's meeting Trevino. And Trevino is the guy who broke Tony Jacqueline. Happened in 1972 at the Open Championship. Jacqueline and Trevino tied on Sunday coming into the 17th hole. Jacqueline had a 15-foot birdie putt. And Trevino's over the green in four. Huge advantage to Jacqueline. Trevino, being his usual chatty self, actually congratulates Jacqueline on winning as if it's a foregone conclusion. We don't know if that's head games or if he really meant it. And he seems to be almost just casually flailing at his fifth shot. Incredibly, he chips it in for par. Kind of a miracle. Jacqueline is seriously rattled. He three putts from 15 feet for bogey. And all of a sudden, he feels that the entire world is against him. This is now two rounds he played with Trevino. Trevino kept chipping in from all over the place. The whole thing seems like this great cosmic injustice to Jacqueline. He bogeyed 18. Trevino won the tournament. And Jacqueline later admits it wrecked him as a golfer. I'll repeat some of his quotes. Quote, I was done after that. As far as majors were concerned, and majors were the only thing that mattered to me. It knocked the stuffing out of me. That night at the Greywalls Hotel, where we were all staying, Nicholas and Palmer both came up to me and said, don't let it affect you. Don't let it change your outlook. But it wasn't that straightforward. Golf isn't that straightforward. Something, I don't know what, died inside me that day. And later he spoke to Sports Illustrated. He said, I felt bloody sick. Nothing's fair. Life and golf are for the takers. You've got to take it, grab it, and keep it. Never give anything away. And I think it's beautiful in a way that they had that moment because it says so much about both of them. Here's Trevino, feeling like he's completely screwed up a chance to win a second straight open championship, but he somehow manages to at least seem ho-hum, chips it in, and it's like the entire universe is smiling on him. And Jacqueline's on the other end of the perspective. He wants control, and he wants karmic justice. And here's this guy getting lucky over and over in all these enraging ways, and then unbelievably he does it again in the biggest moment, and Jacqueline can't take it. It's not right. It's not how things should work. To top it off, the guy that's beating him won't shut up, and he's always smiling like he's got the entire world figured out. Interesting dynamic, isn't it? Got one guy, Trevino, who goes to the flow of life, doesn't seem to get too high or too low, and has this Zen mentality, this sort of almost Buddhist acceptance of things. To go back to the theme of this podcast, you don't get the sense he feels he has to prove himself to anyone, and the fact that he feels that way helps him succeed. And you have the other guy, Jacqueline, who wants to believe he can control every element and safeguard himself against life's vagaries if he just does everything the right way and prepares and sticks to a rigorous plan. Ask yourself, of those two mentalities, which one's going to be better in the crushing pressure of the 17th hole at a major championship? And then ask yourself a very different question. Which one's going to be better as a Ryder Cup captain? Which brings us to the Belfry. Some interesting things are happening in the lead-up, and to prove that there's not a total dearth of strategy on Trevino's part, he forces his players to play alternate shot on Thursday, the practice round, and even puts up $1,000 of his own money to the winners, which in this case was Tom Kite and Calvin Pete. The idea here is that the Americans are bad at foursomes, which is funny in a way, because while it's true now, we've seen them in the last two European Ryder Cups get absolutely killed in alternate shot. It wasn't true then, and one reporter points that out, that actually the Americans have been pretty good at this format. And Trevino says, well, don't tell my players. I got them psyched up pretty well. And on Jacqueline's side, we know he's tweaked the course, and now he's focusing on partnerships, 
And one thing that's new in 85 is the sheer preponderance of Spanish players. There are now four on this team. There's Sevi, Jose Maria Canizares. They were both there in 83, but now you have Manuel Pinheiro and Jose Rivero. And you're starting to hear this new term. The term is the Spanish Armada, which is later going to be used to refer specifically to Sevi and Jose Maria Olathabal. But here now, it's a reference to how the Spanish players are starting to really make their influence felt, not just on European golf, but in the Ryder Cup. And as we're going to find out in 85 for the first time, they're very, very good. And they're going to play an absolutely critical role in the success Europe has in the ensuing 40 years up to the present. Back in 2018, before the Paris Ryder Cup, I did a little research project to find out which country had the best ever record in the Ryder Cup on a match-to-match basis, just looking at individual players and adding up the totals. Very non-scientific, because how do you count pairs matches? But this was just an exercise in fun. I figured the answer would probably be America, just because of the long history of winning dating back to 27. And even with their downturn recently, America's record overall in matches was 55%. Turns out, though, two countries were better. One was Belgium, believe it or not. But we're not going to really count that because it's two guys, nine total matches, Peters and Colsards, too small a sample size. But the other country, with a 57% winning percentage in number one, was Spain. And that's with about 150 matches under their belts. Pretty good argument that this is the greatest Ryder Cup country, period. And Seve starts to show how good he's going to be in 83, but in 85... We're going to feel that influence in a big way for the first time. And Jacqueline can maybe see which way the wind blows in this sense because Rivero is a surprise pick for him after Christy O'Connor Jr. fell out of the rankings late. And when he calls on Rivero Saturday afternoon for the first time in alternate shot, he and Ken Azares destroy Kite and Pete, the guys who won Trevino's $1,000 in the alternate shot practice. Overall, though, a funny thing is that Jacqueline's three captain's picks aren't going to be that great. Rivero's fine, he goes one and one, but Nick Faldo struggles, Ken Brown struggles, and all three will lose in Sunday singles. Jacqueline's real strength this time is going to come in his pairings, and a few very, very tough decisions he has to make along the way. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get to Friday morning. The Europeans decide to lead off with foursomes, alternate shot. The first out of the gate is Seve Ballesteros and Manuel Pinheiro, going head-to-head with Curtis Strange and an American rookie, Marco Mira. And this version of the Spanish Armada wins 2-1, and one, a little taste of things to come. Seve drives the green on number 10. He actually had been the first ever to do that in 1978. Crowd loves it. Europe has a point. But that's the only good news for Europe. In that second match, Tom Kite and Calvin Pete, the guys who won Trevino's money, playing alternate shot in the practice round, they win. They beat Langer and Faldo, and Faldo is awful. And now Jacqueline has a choice to make because he knows, and a lot of people know, that Faldo is going through a swing change, and he's also going through a divorce with his first wife, Melanie Rockwell. She caught him having an affair, and Faldo's quote about that marriage later is, We were happily married for eight months. Unfortunately, we were married for four and a half years. This, by the way, is the first of three divorces for Faldo. But anyway, it's clearly affecting his game, and Jacqueline has a conundrum. You may remember in 83, there was a point at which Bernard Langer came up to Jacqueline on Saturday and said, I'm tired, let me rest. And Jacqueline said, hell no. He knew, to, he knew he needed Langer, tired or not. And Langer went out and got a very big win Saturday afternoon. But now Jacqueline goes to Faldo. He said in his words, I've got a dilemma. Do I play you again this afternoon or do I put Canizares with Langer? 
and he asks him to be honest for the team's sake, and Faldo, to his credit, puts his ego aside and says, put Canizares in. And Jacqueline does. So what's different about the two situations? Why does he reject Langer when he says he's tired but agrees to sit Faldo? I think in situations like these, there's no better answer than that it may not be very internally consistent, but it's Jacqueline's instinct. And part of what makes a good captain good is that he can assess these situations and make the right call and understand that people are different and what worked once may not work again. Paul McGinley told me a great story. You may remember he consulted the legendary Manchester United manager, Sir Alex Ferguson, for leadership advice before the 2014 Ryder Cup. And at one point, Ferguson told him a story about a player he had named Eric Cantona, who was this great player, but also kind of a miserable hothead known as a prima donna. And when he first came to Man U, one of the first times they flew out to a Champions League match, the dress code is, you always have a pants, a shirt, and a tie. That's the rule. Well, Cantona shows up in jeans and a leather jacket. And if you're Ferguson, what do you do here? Well, you might think, if I don't confront this nip it in the bud, he's going to walk all over me. The other players are going to see there's a double standard. They'll resent me. I'll look weak. It'll ruin team chemistry. I've got to show publicly that this is not okay. And in 95% of cases, that may be true. But in this case, because he's Alex Ferguson, he just had the sense that it wasn't true. That the best thing to do is actually to ignore it, not even mention it. And if he had to explain why, maybe it has something to do with the fact that he's being tested. He knows he's being tested, provoked a little bit. But maybe deep down, Cantona doesn't want the fight either. But in the end, it's not about logic or reason, but instinct. And Ferguson does nothing. And the next time they take a flight, Cantona wears pants, a shirt, and tie, and it's never a problem again. Well, how did he know how to do that? How did he know that this was the right move? How did Jacqueline know to keep Langer in and sit Nick Faldo? The answer is they just knew. So Faldo, who will be this European Ryder Cup legend and eventually hold the record for most points until Sergio Garcia breaks it, and who will win a bunch of majors and is probably still Great Britain's best modern golfer, is done. He won't play again until singles, when he has to play, and even then he'll lose to Hubert Green. The rest of that first session goes no better. Watkins and Floyd beat Sandy Lyle and Ken Brown. Brown wasn't very good either. He's not going to play until Saturday afternoon. And in the last match, Craig Stadler and the rookie Hal Sutton beat Howard Clark and Sam Torrance. We get to lunchtime on Friday. It's already 3-1 to one America. This is the part in many Ryder Cups where there has to be a serious gut check. We don't have to look very far to see the last time this happened. In 2018, Europe was at home in Paris and went down 3-1. Right when they thought they had great pairings and the course set up perfectly. At that point, another bad session. And you're not dead, but you're really behind the eight ball. We saw in Paris what happened. Europe bounced back, went 4-0 in afternoon foursomes, and it was like the morning never happened. 85, Jacqueline, again obeying his instinct, basically kept things cool. Here was his quote later about that critical juncture. I didn't come for the heavy stuff. There were no pep talks, no recriminations. We just had a frank discussion about the way every player was feeling inside. Quite a few players were not fond of foursomes and were looking forward to hitting their own ball in the afternoon. Despite the scoreline, I felt we went out optimistic and determined. Pretty impressive. And you go back to the idea of how much is at stake, how much they have to prove. And in the afternoon, they start to crawl back. First match is an absolute banger. Paul Way and Ian Woosdom shoot a combined 64 on best ball. Even still, they barely beat Fuzzy Zeller and Hubert Green one up. Maybe the best match 
in terms of quality of play of that whole Ryder Cup. Second match is interesting. It's Sevian Manuel Pinheiro again, and they're facing two rookies, Peter Jacobson and Andy North. And Jacobson and North are surprised to be put together, which says a lot all on its own. You think anyone on Europe was surprised by their pairings the day of the match? No. And Jacobson said, I don't think any of the players really had any input. I think Lee Trevino was just making the pairings on his own. Some pretty typical American modus operandi there, right? Throw the rookies to the wolves in their very first match out. But the real surprise for Peter Jacobson, even more than his partnership with North, is what he's seeing from Seve and Pinheiro. It's not what he's expecting. He says, quote, They were very focused and very intense. They're both very good friends of mine, and I guess I was expecting a little more camaraderie. There really wasn't much. It was pretty much a dog-eat-dog match from their standpoint. I didn't realize how intense they were, how intent the Europeans were on winning until that match. I thought, wow, these guys are really here to play. I'm not a bulldog competitor like Lanny Watkins or Ramian Floyd. I want to win, but I don't want to lose a friendship over a match. End quote. And you see that over and over. Yes, the Americans know the Europeans are good. That's not a surprise anymore. If they didn't know it in 83, and by the way, most of them did, they certainly knew it after. But what continues to shock them is how badly Europe wants to win. They don't get that. To them, this is an exhibition that until a few years ago, they won every single time. Sort of a gentleman's gathering. The crowds were friendly and appreciative, and that was that. Now, they're confronting a whole different animal. We understand the legend of Seve today, the brilliance, the gamesmanship, all of it. But it's pretty stunning to hear that Peter Jacobson went out on Friday afternoon, the first day of the Ryder Cup, he thought he and his Spanish friends would be yucking it up for 18 holes. Socially, at least, it was a rude awakening. Although you have to say, the rookies fought pretty well under the circumstances, but the Spanish Armada wins again, 2-1. Pinero hold out a 30-foot ship on 16 to win the 16th, and afterward Andy North marveled, saying of Seve, it seemed that no matter what Spaniard he played with, he seemed to get that Spaniard to play the best golf he could possibly play. Langer and Canizares, who's in for Faldo, get a half against Stadler and Sutton, who had a very nice first day. And in the last match, Floyd and Watkins, the Bulldog competitors Jacobson referenced, win again, 2-1 and one over Torrance and Clark. Going into Saturday, the Americans still lead, but it's 4.5 to 3.5, a, a lot better from the European perspective than it could have been. And it gets even better on Saturday morning. Sam Torrance and Howard Clark are now 0-2, You'd maybe expect them at least to get broken up, if not benched completely. But Jacqueline puts them back out, puts them first, and they reward him with a one-up victory over Tom Kite and Andy North. The Ryder Cup is tied. Up next, Wei and Woosnam strike again in a blowout over Green and Zeller. Now Europe's up a point. But the third match swings things the other way, and who else is responsible? But of course, America's greatest Ryder Cupper, Lanny Watkins. He teams up with Marco Mira this time. He takes down Seve and Pinheiro, 3-2. and two. And that's the kind of win in the Ryder Cup, just when momentum seems to be shifting the other way, that's really worth more than just a point. That's quite a scalp. And the bad news for Europe is that in the final match, Langer and Sandy Lyle are two down with two to play against Curtis Strange and Craig Stadler. 17th is playing very easy. It's almost definite the Europeans lead an eagle. And somehow Sandy Lyle delivers one, a miracle 25-footer to keep the match alive. But... It's still one up with one to play. The Americans look very likely to keep their one-point lead. And even more likely, when on 18, Lyle and Langer both miss their birdie putts. And Craig Stadler likes his birdie putt to 18 inches. 
if it's any other match or any other moment in this match, that putt gets conceded. But it's for the win. It's for the match win. So Lyle and Langer stay quiet. He's got to putt out. Now, one of the recurring truths about human nature is that people, when they tell a story about something that's happened, they want to find meaning in specific moments, meaning that explains why things went the way they did. And maybe sometimes they're kind of forcing a neat narrative structure onto something that wasn't so neat, trying to make order out of the chaos in ways that fall short of truth. And maybe for all I know, all of Team Europe is guilty of that when it comes to what happened on the 18th green with Craig Stadler. All I can tell you is what happened in that moment, how they reacted, what happened over the next day, and what people say about it now. And what they say about it now, and what I'm convinced they felt even then, is that the entire Ryder Cup changed in an instant. And when I say changed, I don't mean in a small way. I mean in such a big way that it's not really much of an exaggeration in their minds, even though it sounds absurd, to say that they thought they had just won the whole thing. If you didn't already know, you see where this is going. Stadler missed his putt. The session ends 6-6. It's a dead heat. The crowd gasps, and they start to cheer. Stadler turns away, starts walking to the lake, and here's what his playing partner, Curtis Strange, said. Quote, I was standing there right on top of him, helping him read the putt, although there wasn't anything to read. He just missed it, and we halved. At that moment, you don't say anything. You certainly don't say, that's all right. He might slap you upside the head, because it's not all right. You shake hands and go about your business, recoup in a hurry because you have to go play more golf in a few minutes. But it gave them such momentum. I don't mean anything against Craig, but that's just the way it worked. End quote. Here's how Alistair Tate described the scene from the team room in his biography of Seve Ballesteros. This is while the Europeans were watching on TV. And keep in mind that Seve had just lost his first match of that cup, 3-2. and two. He's fresh off a loss. Tate writes, there was Bedlam in the European team room. Seve leapt out of his chair when the ball missed the hole. The chair went tumbling, and Seve came down with a bang and landed on his back. His teammates were hammering on the wall to the American team dressing room. The dream was alive. The Europeans had halted the American juggernaut. Tony Jacklin was on the course, but he saw Seve later. And here's what he said to me. He said, from a personal level, I never wanted to beat anybody by him screwing up. I wanted to beat people. I wanted to have my best game, and I wanted to kick their ass. And I remember seeing Stadler miss this putt, and my immediate reaction was shock. But Seve said, this is it. He picked up on it immediately. End quote. Amazing, isn't it, to see again that keen sense Seve had of knowing when he had an opponent on the run. And it didn't even matter that he just lost, nor did any feelings of sympathy for Stadler get in the way. Jacqueline's a great planner, but he's been through his own tremendous heartbreak, and he feels for Stadler. But Seve's like a shark, and now he smells blood. All right, well, you might be hearing all this and thinking, hold on a second. It's 6-6. It's Saturday at noon. There are going to be 28 total matches here. We're not even halfway home in terms of total matches played. It's tied. How on earth is anybody jumping to the insane conclusion that this is over? And you won't be surprised to know that was also Craig Stadler's opinion years later. Here's what he said in 2002. Every time the Ryder Cup comes around, I've got to watch that all over again. I'll never understand the reaction. Like, I never three-putted before in my entire life. The putt that lost the Ryder Cup? Yeah, I've heard that a lot over the years. But I've never bought that particular story. What was it? Saturday morning? There was still a lot of golf to be played. End quote. And he's right. 
and we should be careful about imparting false meaning on a moment because it's neat and tidy or whatever. But at the same time, it's very, very hard to argue with the concept of momentum and the European ironclad belief that this turned everything around when you see what happened. Saturday afternoon, we're back to alternate shot. And from Jacqueline, it's a full Spanish Armada to start. It's Canizares and Rivero first. They're up against Kite and Pete. Remember the guys who took Trevino's money and who won alternate shot the first day? The Spaniards beat them 7-5. and five. Biggest blowout of the whole cup. Ballesteros and Pinero are next. They beat Craig Stadler, who probably wants to dig himself into a hole, and Hal Sutton, 5-4. and four. Just like that, Europe's up two. The last two matches will be split. Curtis Strange and Peter Jacobson take down Wayne Woosnam, but Langer and Ken Brown, of all people, he's back. They get a massive, massive win, 3-2 and two against Floyd and Watkins. Now it's 9-7 with only singles left, and unlike 6-6, that's a real honest-to-God lead. So was it over when Stadler missed his putt? Did it flip the momentum switch permanently? I don't know. We'll never know. But it gets easier to believe the more you look at everything that followed. Two interesting things happened before Sunday singles. You may remember in 83, Jacqueline absolutely shocked and scandalized Jack Nicholas by putting his best players out first. Simply wasn't done. Custom was that you put the top guns at the end of the lineup. And it's so stunning to Nicholas that he actually says, you can't do that. Well, the Americans learned that move, and now Jacqueline has a very good feeling that Trevino is going to remember that, and he's going to lead with his strength in an attempt to reverse that two-point deficit immediately, which is exactly what Trevino does. He comes out with Watkins, Stadler, Floyd, Kite. The only real stalwart he holds back is Curtis Strange. He keeps him for the 12th spot just in case. And Jacqueline decides, you know what? I'm going to change up on them again. I'm going to stack the middle with strength. So from three to six, he's got Seve, Sandy Lyle, Langer, and Torrance, four guys he considers among his strongest. Now, this is a significant risk because what he's gambling on here is that if the Americans come out with strength like he thinks they have to do, he has to be ready to lose the first couple matches with the idea that if you do, you rebound quickly in the middle and hopefully put it away. But we always hear about players looking at the first few matches on the board, how much that can influence momentum, what if there are American flags on that board? It has a knock-on effect on everything that comes later, and maybe you have some bad luck in the middle. Well, suddenly, you have a disaster on your hands. So what he's attempting here, it makes sense, but it comes with a potential downside. But the other thing that happens offsets all that. On Saturday night, the Europeans are in a team meeting, and Manuel Pinheiro who at this point is 3-1 with Seve, is feeling his oats, he's primed, he's ready to go, and he says to everyone, I want Watkins, I want Watkins. And Jacqueline considers it, and it starts to sound like a pretty good idea, and it fits in with everything else he's doing. Here's what Jacqueline told me last year. In 85, I put little Manuel Pinheiro, who was a great guy, good friend of mine, and he was typical of what America didn't understand about match play. Manuel Pinheiro wasn't a great stroke player, but match play was his forte. He was like a little terrier dog. He'd grab onto the ankle and he wouldn't let go. So Pinheiro says he wants Watkins, and Smart Money says Watkins will go out first. So Jacqueline agrees, writes Pinheiro's name in the number one spot. An hour later, the draws come out, and here's what Jacqueline remembers. Lo and behold, Trevino put Watkins out first. When Manuel got to know that he was playing Watkins, he jumped. He jumped. Little guy jumped four feet in the air. 
Sunday morning, 9-7 Europe. Pinheiro and Watkins out first. Watkins birdies number three to go one up. Pinheiro gets him back the very next hole. Watkins goes one up again on five. Pinheiro gets him back on eight. Then on 10 and 11, Pinheiro makes back-to-back birdies to go two up. And then he won't give an inch. It's pars for three straight holes, and Watkins can't make the big putt. 15 comes, the par five, and Pinheiro, the terrier, birdies again, three up with three to play. Watkins, being himself, almost wills a birdie on 16 to take it back to two down, but the deficit, the environment, it's too much. He bogeys 17, and Manuel Pinheiro had beaten him three and one. Here's Jacqueline one more time. Quote, it was the opportunity he wanted, and he kicked his ass and he beat him. The reaction from the rest of the field, our lot, when they saw Manuel had taken care of Watkins. Can you imagine what that does? God, if he can do that. And here Jacqueline trailed off. He didn't need to say the effect that that would have. Lanny Watkins will play Ryder Cups all the way until 1993. He'll finish his career with a record of 20-11-3, one of only three Americans with 20 wins and the only one to do it in the European era. When the chips were down in 83, he stepped up and hit one of the greatest shots in Ryder Cup history, basically won it for his team. He's a legend. But nobody plays long enough in this event without some bad memories, without some scar tissue, not even Lanny Watkins. This loss to Pinheiro is the biggest, most important loss of his Ryder Cup career, and it's not even close. It means that America is not going to get any kind of momentum early, and then Jacqueline's plan works to perfection. Those four to seven spots, Seve was down three holes to play with five to play against Tom Kite, and then starts hitting shots that Kite would later say, I never dream about, steals a half point. Sandy Lyle beats Peter Jacobson. Langer dusts Hal Sutton 5-4, and four, which brings us to Sam Torrance and Andy North in the seventh match. At that point, Europe had 13.5 points with six matches on the course. So on paper, it looks great, beyond great. The problem is America's leading in three of them, and the other three are close. So it's far from a foregone conclusion at this point. And Torrance, by his own admission, played very poorly to start in his match. He gets three down after ten holes. But he starts making pars, and he gets lucky because North goes ice cold. North makes four bogeys in five holes. And standing on the tee at the 17th, Torrance is only one down. North makes a mess of his drive. Torrance puts his second shot into the hay on the par five, but it hits a terrific out and has a six-footer for birdie. Sinks it. All square heading into 18. And Tony Jacklin meets up with him at this point, tells him the situation, says he can win the Ryder Cup outright if he wins this match. And Torrance hands him his driver as a joke, says, you do it. That makes Jacqueline laugh, but he imparts the point again. You can do this. 18th hole, Torrance is full of adrenaline, hits the drive of his life. North goes next, he pops his drive up. Remember, there's water everywhere in this hole. And off the club, Torrance knows exactly where it's going, water. Torrance looks at his ball, he calculates that he has about a nine iron left to the green the shot he can make in his sleep. And as he's walking over the bridge to his ball, hearing the roars of the crowd, he can't help it. He understands he's about to win the Ryder Cup. Imagine how that must feel. Imagine the effort, the stress, the hope that goes into this. It's all about to culminate in the victory you've craved, and you're going to be the guy to earn the winning point. How would you react? For Sam Torrance, it was so overwhelming, so powerful, that he starts to cry. 
before he even gets to his ball in the fairway, he's in tears. He manages to gather himself, says, for God's sake, don't hit the ball fat. It's going to go in the water if you do. Hits a good shot, gets it to about 20 feet. North continues to bungle the hole, and it turns out that Torrance has three putts to win Europe, its first ever Ryder Cup. He only needs one. You can watch that putt on YouTube. You can see the shadow of Torrance's arm shoot up in the air when the ball is about three feet away from the hole. And he stands in that pose, tears streaming down his face while Jacqueline and all the others run up to embrace him. To understand what it means to the Europeans, you can look at Torrance's tears or the celebrations when they climbed on top of the pro shop later, sprayed champagne all over the gallery, or how the team threw Tony Jacklin in his brand new suit into a swimming pool and then proceeded to party for about a week. But I like a story from a man named Renton Laidlaw, who was commenting for BBC Radio, and he was describing all the action as it happened, and he decided after a while it was time to let his partner, John Fenton, another longtime BBC commentator, say something. So he set him up, he said, John, we haven't won this since 1957. Threw it his way, waited for him to say something. Nothing. Fenton, whose job it is to narrate this stuff and who's very good at it, was so overcome he couldn't speak. Meant a lot to the Americans, too. Andy North went 0-3. Memory haunted him for a time. He said, I had to sit and watch the next couple of Ryder Cups by myself. No one would want to be near me, and it's still very disappointing. Curtis Strange was on the 15th hole on the verge of winning his match in the final spot, but it was already over, and he could hear the roars and the chanting and the singing from 18. He later said, God, it's a terrible thing, isn't it? Trevino tried to put a good face on it. With reporters later, he said, We lost and I love to win, but I learned a long time ago that anybody can smile when they win. It takes a hell of a man to smile when you lose. Well, I'm still smiling. It was no disgrace. We lost to a good, strong team, end quote. But outside that spotlight, he was accused of being ungracious at the team dinner that night. Can't find many details on that. We know in the press he singled out Watkins' loss as a critical moment. And according to Andy North, he wouldn't even really talk to him. So Trevino not handling it maybe as well as he would like the media to believe. Afterward, when the ceremonies were over... The Europeans go off to the team room to keep the fun going through the night, but Tony Jacklin decides to stay in his room with his wife, Vivian. He wants to have a whiskey. He wants to just contemplate where they'd come from, what they'd done, what they'd accomplished. If anyone deserves that moment, it's him. Maybe that gives us permission to be a little contemplative, too. I want to tell a quick story about 1947. We talk about the Ryder Cup as a continuous event from 1927 to the present. There was a year off for 9-11. There's a year off for COVID now, but otherwise basically unbroken. But in fact, after the 1937 Cup, it wasn't held for a decade. The reason why is no secret. The rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany, the rise of Imperial Japan and the Axis powers, the Second World War. Like a lot of other sporting events across the globe, from domestic leagues in Europe and America to the Olympics... The Ryder Cup was not held for the duration of the war. And here in America, we have an idea of the sacrifice our country made. 405,000 people killed, many more wounded in the effort to win that fight. And it sounds like a lot. And it is a lot. It was a tremendous sacrifice. But in history, there's always context. Here's some. In that same war, the Soviet Union lost 27 million people, including 19 million civilians. 
So there are degrees of loss. And in the UK, the total dead was just a little bit more than America, 450,000. But there are a couple important things to keep in mind. First, their population is smaller, so it's a bigger blow. Then there's the fact that 67,000 of those dead were civilians, most of them killed in the Blitz by the German Luftwaffe bombing raids. The U.S. had Pearl Harbor, but do you know how many Americans were killed on the U.S. mainland in the course of that war? The answer is five. A family on a picnic in Oregon found a so-called fire balloon the Japanese had flown over on wind currents, kind of ambitious but ill-fated attempt at civilian terrorism. In this case, it exploded. It killed five of them. That was the only civilian death toll to speak of in the continental United States. Meanwhile, for years, the British people lived in fear. Imagine the psychological toll it takes when at a moment's notice you may have to run to a bomb shelter, praying desperately that you or your loved ones aren't killed by German bombs, and also, by the way, worrying that your country may be overrun by your enemies. And they had it better than continental Europe. At least the Germans never actually invaded them. A little more context. Just as in World War I, the U.S. came out of that war, economically and militarily speaking, as a robust superpower about to enter a golden age. Not so for the U.K., who lost unbelievable amounts of wealth, had to re-gear their entire infrastructure, their entire means of production away from wartime needs, entered a period of austerity, and had to rely on the U.S. for billion-dollar loans, the dollar by then having become the world's foremost currency. Professional golf, of course, followed suit. Starting after World War I, the sport that had been invented in the UK and which had been dominated by the UK for decades started going the other way fast, became a sport dominated by Americans. It accelerated even more after World War II. Starting in 1949, British golfers would win exactly one major in 20 years, and that streak was only broken, as you might remember, by Tony Jacklin himself and not until 1969. And you could argue that maybe British golf never quite recovered from those wars, just like the British Empire never recovered. They certainly haven't reached their former status and probably never will. So, in the midst of all this, 1947, just two years after World War II ended, do you think the UK had enough money to stage a Ryder Cup, much less to send 12 golfers to America to compete abroad? You think that was a priority for the British PGA? And even if it was, guess what? They couldn't afford it. And you look at that situation, and if you didn't have historical foresight, you'd say to yourself, there's no way the Ryder Cup continues. It isn't feasible. But as we've seen, the Ryder Cup has a strange way of surviving against the odds. And the savior this time is an American I hadn't heard of until recently. Golf Digest's Dave Shedlowski inadvertently brought him to my attention, a man named Robert Hudson, a grocery executive from Oregon. He'd had his own food processing company, he introduced the Piggly Wiggly store to the Portland area. He was very, very wealthy. The parallels between him and Samuel Ryder, the man who founded the Ryder Cup, are interesting. Hudson's a grocer, Ryder's a seed merchant. Both of them came to golf late in life, and both became obsessed very quickly. And like Ryder, Hudson gets an itch to give back to the game to become very involved. At one point in the 40s, the Portland Open was about to go bust, but he saved it by sponsoring it through his store. Then he brought the 1946 PGA Championship to Portland Golf Club. And then he did something even more incredible. This man, who is still really new to the sport, whose handicap would never get lower than 16, decided the Ryder Cup should come back. You wonder if he even knew what the Ryder Cup was the last time it had been held in 1937. Doesn't matter. 
He learns now something about it speaks to him, and he decides that working with the PGA of America, he's going to resuscitate this thing. Nothing's going to stop him. Case in point, when he learns that the British couldn't pay for it, he says, fine, I'll pay for it myself. Pay for both teams, all expenses, travel, food, lodging, everything. It's on my dime. And he paid for a British team to travel to the U.S. on a ship called the Queen Mary. He met them in New York, threw a party for them that night at the Waldorf Astoria, and then traveled with them for four days to Portland by train. Thanks to Robert Hudson, there was a Ryder Cup that year. And the next time, and the next time. And it's a story that, for me, I think it's spectacular, because I don't know Robert Hudson, I don't know what kind of man he was, but an act like this might have been the only thing that kept this tournament going. And I like those moments in history where exactly the right person enters the stage at exactly the right time. About that 1947 Cup, that British team that came to Portland, who are they? Well, if you're like me and you've maybe read a little bit about golf in that era, but you're far from an historian, you might recognize one or two names, but not many. You will on the U.S. team. Ben Hogan, Jimmy Demerit, Byron Nelson, Sam Snead, among others. Might sound like the beginning of the greatest David versus Goliath story of all time, but it wasn't. America had entered its prime in so many ways, and golf was one of those ways. They beat the British 11-1, to and that one came in the very last match. Got so bad that Ben Hogan didn't even play the last day. We don't know what those British players thought during that Ryder Cup. As far as I can tell, there aren't many primary sources. We don't know if they thought they could win or were just happy for the adventure or what. With hindsight, though, you can see their real purpose, and their real purpose was to keep something from dying. They were there for the future. Their names were Jimmy Adams, Fred Daly, Max Faulkner, Eric Green, Reg Horn, Sam King, Arthur Lees, Di Reese, and Charlie Ward. Their playing captain was Henry Cotton. They came from England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. And look, it's possible to read too much into a result like the 1985 Ryder Cup. The scope of all this is very limited in the big picture. Everyone knows that, even though sometimes we want to believe that sports matter more than they really do. And we're not above shoehorning in that added meaning where it might not belong. When Sam Torrance made his winning putt on that 18th hole, we can't go so far as to say it was for the redemption of Great Britain or a renunciation of the war or anything melodramatic like that. There are a lot of complications that make this metaphor messy. For instance, if you're going to paint this as some kind of triumphant British post-war story, you have to reckon with the fact that Germany is now on their team. That makes it a little tough to wrap a neat bow on things, doesn't it? But for me at least, when that putt went down, when Europe secured its first Ryder Cup, I can't separate that moment, ever since I learned about it, from the memory of the 1947 British team. Competitively against the Americans, that 47 team were like lambs to the slaughter, but that's not why they went to Portland. They went because on some level they understood that even something like a golf tournament, which may look trivial even in the best of times, and probably looks even smaller in the aftermath of a global war that ravaged your country, still mattered in the way that these institutions do matter, in that they mark our existence and our continuity. They didn't go to accomplish something great on the course. They went so that the Ryder Cup would survive down the years, and one day there would be people doing great and dramatic things on the course, and that these things would be meaningful, at least to somebody. And one day the players that did those great and dramatic and meaningful things would be English and Scottish and Welsh and Irish. And to get to that point, in 1947, the most important thing 
was for them to show up, to keep the dream of that future day alive. Forty years later, when Torrance's putt fell at the Belfry, that day had come. Everyone from that team has passed away now, by the way. Max Faulkner was the last to go 16 years ago. But seven of them were still living in 1985. And I catch myself wondering what they must have thought when they saw this result or heard about it or read about it. We'll never get to ask them at this point. But I bet they remembered their trip to the west coast of America. And I have a feeling they had the same thought that Torrance had that Seve Ballesteros had, that Tony Jacklin, sipping whiskey in his room, had. We're back. All right, that was 1985. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you for your patience, as always. I know there's a lot of time between these episodes. They take a long time to write. Life intervenes. Things like that happen. But I appreciate you sticking with me. It's been very gratifying in the last couple of weeks to see the listener base grow, uh, based largely on some you know people on Twitter being very nice and spreading the message. So whether you're new here or whether you've been here since the beginning, I want to let you know I appreciate you. I really appreciate the chance to share this special uh, little slice of history, this Ryder Cup history, with other people who are so passionate about it. love hearing from you on Twitter and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, thank you. It is just after 1 a.m. on Sunday morning as I'm wrapping up here. And in a couple hours, I'm going to be catching a flight to Chicago, grabbing a rental car there, driving north along Michigan, Final destination, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Kohler, Wisconsin, and of course, Whistling Straits for the Ryder Cup. That is going to start less than a week from now. Very pumped about that. I know you are too. And if you've got Ryder Cup fever and maybe uh, you've enjoyed this podcast and you say, what can I do? How can I get more Ryder Cup fever? Uh, I have a, a book that I've been working on for three years that's coming out next spring, but it is available for pre-order right now. If you go to barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com, you can type in the cup they couldn't lose. It'll have my name next to it. That's how you know it's the right one. Um, or, like I said before, um, I'll put a, a link in the description, in the show description, that you can follow if you're so inclined. I would really appreciate that, of course. Last thing, I think I may be bringing my podcast equipment with me to Chicago. So if I do that, I'm, I'm going to try very hard to pack it and make sure that it won't break or anything like that. But if I can pull it off then uh, you may be hearing from me much quicker than before, much quicker than you think. So thanks again, and yeah, wherever you are, have a great day, night, whatever, and goodbye. <laughs>